Exodus chapter 20, and while you're opening there, um, I want to tell you a little bit about where I grew up. So I grew up in a town called Warsaw, Illinois. Warsaw is a town of about 1,800 people, very rural, Midwestern town. I, uh, and, and so I, uh, I, I, you know, grew up in this farm town. I was, you know, you might call me a hick. I, I don't think I'm a hick anymore. I, don't, I think Chicago has reformed me and reshaped me. But this is where I grew up. And something interesting about the place that I grew up in, like I want to talk to you about normal life in Warsaw. Normal life in Warsaw is, uh, you know, we'd get home at the end of the day and we'd just like walk up to our door and we'd walk in. And you'd go, okay, well, that's the same thing that everybody else does. Well, you know, a, a different step that you all take that, uh, that we didn't have to take is you all take your keys out of your pocket and you unlock the door on your house. I didn't have to unlock the door on my house because we left our doors unlocked. Right? Like, this was the place that I lived in. Uh, we leave our cars in the middle of the night, and we didn't have to, to lock our cars. We, we just didn't have to be concerned. Like, we could leave stuff laying out in, uh, you know, whether it's in our yard. Like, I could take my wallet, and, and I could leave my wallet in a place and walk away and forget it and go home. And I could trust, like, if I, like, what did I do with my wallet? Oh, no, I left it. I left it there, Right? I could go back to the place and trust, like fully trust, that when I got there, my wallet was either going to be still in that place or somebody will have taken it and turned it into some authority, right? And I could go get it back. I didn't have to worry about somebody taking my stuff in the place that I grew up. Now, we might go, well, is that because they were like genuinely good people, or is it because the town was so small that if somebody stole something, we would all know who it was that stole it? I don't know like what the explanation is, but I do know the reality that I did not have to worry about somebody taking my stuff. So, when I was in my senior year of high school, I was graduating and actually preparing to go away from home for a longer time than I've ever had to been away, go away from home. So um, I was going uh, on a plane for the first time. I'd never been in an airport before. Never, uh, you know, flew on a plane before. And I was going to go to Europe for six weeks, right? So I was going to go up to Chicago's O'Hare Airport, uh, and I was going to fly to a different country where people have different values. And my dad knew as I was leaving this town that I lived in, my dad knew something. My dad did not grow up in Warsaw, Illinois. My dad grew up in very urban Virginia. And in very urban Virginia, he knew it is important to protect your stuff. Right, He knew that his stuff was at risk, and so when he knew that I was leaving my town, he prepared me for the reality, your stuff will be vulnerable. Right, So we came up with all of these creative ways, actually. He gave me all of these uh, creative means of making sure that my stuff was protected. Like, I had to hide my money in uh, one sock here, and then the other sock here, and then I had to uh, get my, in my backpack, I had like 50 different pockets, and, and of those 50, I probably had to take 10 of them and like put my passport in one place and put my wallet in another place and put some more money in another place, right? So, so that if I lost something, I didn't lose everything right? Because uh, 
he knew that I was going to, into a situation where I was going to be more vulnerable than I was before. My stuff was going to be more vulnerable than it was before. So, so it's interesting that dad knew, like, hey, when you leave this place and you're going to be vulnerable, you have to protect your stuff. Like, if we realize the valuable things that we own and that we have are in jeopardy, what do we do? We protect those things. So, like, guess what? If you live in Bartlett and you leave your car unlocked overnight, like, people all the time are going and just walking up to these doors and checking them and going to see, hey, is this car unlocked? Is there something that I can take from this car? It's been happening, actually, with, with relative frequency around here. Um, you know, uh, this place, you can't, and Andrea has had to get on me about this, you can't just leave your doors unlocked up here, right? This is something that I'm learning because we recognize, like, our valuable things, if we leave our doors open and unlocked, they'll be in jeopardy. We need to protect them. And so this value for protecting things that are in jeopardy, like, it's no surprise that this would be a value that we have, right? Because God is our creator. And interestingly enough, when God wants to protect something, he, like, when God values something, he places boundaries around it. Like, he establishes means of protecting those things that he values that might be in jeopardy. So, so if God is like that, if he protects that which he owns, why? Why would he not make us this very same way to do the very same thing? So we're in this series on the Ten Commandments, and, and the last few weeks, we've kind of been looking through the last few commandments through the lens of honor. Like, what it means to honor the specific things that God is talking about. And honor still holds true today. But interestingly enough, you could take many of these commandments and overlap them on top of each other. Like, each commandment is, in a way, a lens through which to see the other commandments. And that is especially true with today's command about stealing. So, number eight, don't steal. You could almost use this command as a rubric for all the other commands. So, uh, so what is God really doing here? Well, what he does with every single command, is he declares ownership over a certain thing, and then, you know, kind of develops these boundaries around that thing in order to protect that thing that he's talking about. So what are some examples of this? Well, the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. So what he says is, I own my position. And you should not give my position to anyone else. You cannot take my position from me. It belongs to me. Number two, he says, you shall not make anything in my image or you shall not make an image of me. Why? Because God says, I own my image. I decide what I do with my image. You cannot take my image. It belongs to me. Don't take my name in vain. Like he literally says, don't take my name. Like, don't take it from, my name belongs to me. You will not do wrong with my name. It's mine. You cannot take it from me. He places boundaries around these things that he values in order to protect them. And interestingly enough, the values behind this eighth commandment, they are laced throughout all of the other commandments. Like, laced throughout the Ten Commandments are the ideas of strong work ethic, personal ownership, like learning to be content with what you have, taking responsibility for yourself and seeing God as the owner of all of life. 
So church, God is an owner. This is what the Ten Commandments show us. God is an owner who protects anything called his. Right? That, that's just his character, and that gets so further reflected in the Eighth Commandment. So in your Bibles, we encounter this Eighth Command. Exodus 20.15. You shall not steal. So let's talk about the Israelites. The Israelites are at the foot of this mountain. Uh, as we read the, the end of those verses, they're actually hearing God speak these values, right? They hear what he is saying in this moment. And, and, and where are these Israelites coming from? Well, they are coming from an Egyptian culture. And in this Egyptian culture, they, had, they were slaves in this culture. And what they observed is kind of this top down approach authoritarian model of like running a country and what happens when there is this top-down approach well uh, you get bullying you get abuse by the person who is bigger than you are who is has more power than you do you get some corruption of power so so it would probably wouldn't be any surprise for somebody in power in egypt to walk up to an israelite and when they walk up to the israelite they just take whatever they want to take Right? They, they, they have permission uh, to whatever property those Israelites own because, well, they're higher up in the chain than those Israelites are. Right? And so I'm just curious, like, what lessons would Israel have learned from watching this? Like, remember, Egypt was the greatest country in the world. Israel has this promise that you are going to be great. And if you're like, looking at the way that Egypt operates, and you go, well, I wonder if that's what it means to be great. So that I wonder if when we get in power, that we would just kind of take things and bully as we please and do whatever we want with the things that are in our country, the stuff that is there. There's this potential lesson that they could learn, and, 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 and maybe even some of those Israelites, because of their station for all of these years, because they've been kind of so low on the totem pole, maybe they would even be prone to kind of take some of that authority for themselves when they want the chance, to kind of take some things that don't belong to them. They longed for this kind of power. It's definitely a possibility. And so there's this, this potential chaos that could exist in Israel, and God actually has to speak into this chaos and halt this cultural and generational sin that could just break out. And so he says, no stealing. So, so stealing, what is stealing? Well, uh, not surprisingly, stealing is taking what is not yours right? Like, it is very simple to understand what stealing is, and there are really kind of two ways that we can do this, two big ways. We can do this by force, or we can do this by deception, right? So by force, you get bullies who just come in and say, hey, I'm going to take this thing from you, so you better give it to me, or I'm going to, like, you know, make your life very difficult. Uh, You get things like blackmail, right? When somebody's blackmailing somebody, they're essentially saying, hey, I'm going to let some information. They're like, there's no deception. They're not hiding anything. I'm going to let some information I have about you go to everyone else unless you give me what I'm asking for. Or this is like outright robbery, right? Imagine armed robbery, somebody walking into a convenience store and saying, give me everything. This is by force. That's one way you can steal. The other way is by deception. You do this by sneaking around, by committing fraud, by stealing identities and that kind of stuff, and by, uh, by outright lying, right? You can steal things by just not being honest about what you're stealing. 
And so God comes along to the Israelites and says, hey, ownership is really, really important. Like, ownership is really valuable. It is significant. So we could ask the question, like, how do I know that something is not mine? Right? Like, if if stealing is taking what is yours, then how do I know that something is not mine? Well, here are some questions to help you evaluate whether or not something is yours. Did you earn it? Was it given to you? Or maybe, maybe you went through a process by which ownership was kind of conferred or transferred to you from the previous owner, right? So if you can't answer yes to any of those questions, then it doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. If your answer is no, then it's not yours and you should not take it. Why? Because you don't own it, right? You have no ownership over that particular thing. So interesting, the Ten Commandments, uh, many of them actually, they get told in the narrative of the Old Testament leading up to when God actually gives the commands. God shows us the value of these commands before he ever actually gives the commands. He tells a bunch of stories that, uh, and gives us Old Testament history, and, and the Israelites would have been telling and retelling this oral tradition that they had, and, and these oral traditions, these stories that they were telling about their history, they would have reflected the very values that come when God gives the Ten Commandments, and that is especially true with stealing. Like the value of ownership, the problem of stealing, it gets illustrated time and time again in the book of Genesis. So like let's start, let's start with the very first sin in the garden. Like God says, what does God say? He says, every tree in this garden is yours, except one tree. This is all yours except one thing. And what do they do? But they walk up to that tree and, and like Satan lies to them, essentially, the snake, he says, he says, you know what? God is keeping something back from you that belongs to you. You shall, you know what? If you, you can take this and you will be like God. There's something that belongs to God right now, but you can steal this, right? So we see the, the, the value of ownership even there when God has declared ownership over certain things in the garden. Uh, think about the Tower of Babel. What, what are the people trying to do except steal God's authority and God's power. They're trying to set themselves up. Uh, They're trying to build this tower up to the heavens. That's the way they can feel like they are big and in charge. They can take God's authority. Jacob and Esau, how about a story of lying there? Uh, If you know the story of Jacob and Esau, what you know is that there was this lie that took place between these two brothers, and what did it do? It created this massive relational rift between the two of them that God never intended. Uh, think about the story of the story of Laban. Uh, you know, Laban has this um, this daughter that he has promised, and and he's going to give this daughter. And so, so what does uh, what does what what do they do? Except they they work. 
for seven years, this promise. Laban says, I'm going to give you my daughter if you work for seven years. And what does Laban do? But at the end of the seven years, he says, here, have the other daughter. I'm going to keep this daughter back. You have to work seven more years. And, and then as the pattern develops, as you watch the story of the character of Laban, what you discover is that he is all about taking things that don't belong to him, right? He, and and the, the narrative actually kind of paints this dark picture of Laban, that he is really just not this good character. And, and what is the first thing that we see about him but that he kind of, through deception, does this stealing act. And then finally, um, you know, we see it in the, the collecting of the, the food that God was providing. Like as God uh, and the Israelites are in Egypt and they are, sorry, in the, in the desert and they are walking through the desert and God is providing this manna, he says, you should only take enough for one day, right? And if you take more than enough for one day, what does it do? But it rots, like worms start to crawl out of it, right? So there is a certain amount that you can take and have ownership of it, but you can't have ownership of any more than what you need, right? So all, all through these stories, God is kind of telling this pattern of ownership. He's kind of setting up this value, and every time someone steals, and these oral traditions that these Israelites have heard, every time someone steals, it does not go well for them. Or they actually become pictured as an adversary in the story of Scripture, Right, so, so Old Testament narrative has this way of revealing things to us before it actually tells us what it's trying to get across. And so before God ever speaks, he has shown in the narrative of history this thing. When ownership is dishonored, the result is long-term damage. When ownership is dishonored, the result is long-term damage. What happens? Well, relationships get wrecked. Societies actually start to fall apart. So, um, you know, I'm going to actually tell a story here. There was this uh, dad and this older brother. And um, they had no contact with each other for 35 years. So my dad, he, uh, he was in, I think he was like 22, 23 years old. And him and, and him and my mom, they were married, and they were living in Virginia. And, um, you know, they had, my, my brother was very young at this point, and they were living in this place. And, and everybody's out of the house one day, and they come back, and all their stuff is gone. Like, just nobody knows what happens. And then all of a sudden they discover, like, my dad doesn't know where his older brother is. His older brother, he's like 16 years older than him. What had happened was my dad's older brother had, had stolen, stolen my parents' stuff, taken all of it and sold it to make the money off it and left town. For 35 years, my, par- my dad did not talk to his older brother. Now there's a story of redemption there and that uh, the older brother called back and um, after this, this 35-year hiatus on the relationship, and they were able to actually restore the relationship. But the, the crazy thing is, when you take somebody else's stuff, it has the potential to do significant damage to that relationship. So what is God doing? 
Well, he's trying to make a new society, and he knows that society cannot thrive when ownership is dishonored. So, so if stealing is expected in this nation, he knows that people will think it is dangerous. Like, imagine, imagine that your home is broken into. Imagine the, the feeling of fear that comes over you when you realize that your home is broken into. Because what has happened? Well, this place that belongs to you, where your family and yourself, you're supposed to be secure here, somebody has disrupted that security. In fact, the, the issue is really not so much the things that were stolen, although the things that were stolen are pretty significant. The bigger issue is I'm not safe in my own home. My stuff is not safe in my own. There's a place where I am supposed to be safe, but I can't be safe. Like, there's this reality that security is very important. And if that stuff is not secure, then then you feel this sense of disruption in your life. You feel this sense of distrust, and, and, and maybe even animosity arises in the relationships around you. You fear for your life if somebody takes your stuff. Right, so, so, this is the reality of what ownership is about. And God then establishes this law about protecting and honoring ownership. Right? He gives this law. So he gives this law, and that law has multiple layers of application in, in society. Uh, we actually see the Israelites kind of work out uh, multiple levels of what it means to apply this law to not steal. So how many ways can you steal? Well, in Israel, you could steal through trafficking humans. In Deuteronomy 24-7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die, right? That's one of the ways you can steal. Another way you can steal, you can steal through fraud. Proverbs 10.2 talks about this, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. You could steal through extortion. Psalm 62.10 tells us about this, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Uh, You could steal, this is one of the significant ways that you could steal, that there were a lot of boundaries placed around. Uh, You could steal through dishonesty in measures. So Leviticus 19, 35 through 36, you shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hand. The idea is, is that like, if you say something is a certain weight, then it should be that weight when you sell it. Like, if you say you have a home that is 2,000 square feet, it should be 2,000 square feet and not 1,999 square feet, right? Because you know that you cross that line if you just jump that one extra square foot up, right? So that's the, that's the idea that's, being, that's uh, going for there. And number five, giving loans at interest. Now, you're like, okay, so my bank is sinning when they charge me interest on my loan. And that, that's actually not what's being talked about. This is the way that the, that the people of God are to treat each other in the Old Testament. When they share 
uh, money with each other, they are not to give those loans at interest. So Exodus twenty two twenty five says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Again, this is like that idea of stealing being carried out in their society. So all of these laws articulated by God developed out of this value that he places on personal ownership. And that, that value is first reflected in the telling of their oral tradition, and then it gets explicit re, explicitly reflected in the giving of these commands. And what it all tells us is that when ownership is dishonored, then long-term damage results. So you might be hearing me talk and say something like, you know what, Alex, you are talking a lot about stuff, right? Like the stuff that we own, the material things that we own. Like, aren't we supposed to be talking about spiritual things in church? Why are we talking so much about stuff? So, um, so I actually want to let you know the idea that, that stuff is sacred to an extent, right? You can lift stuff up too highly, but the fact that we own stuff is actually a significant part of how we carry out what it means to be human. So ownership is sacred. In the beginning, God created everything, and then he created humanity and placed it in the middle, placed humans in the middle of everything. And what does he tell humanity except you are to rule and to have dominion. I am giving you this earth. You shall be fruitful and multiply, and, and you shall have dominion over this place. You shall rule it. So what does he do? He says, hey, I've created this space, and I am now giving you freedom and authority to kind of take this place and, and lead it well. And this gets articulated even further when he says in Genesis two fifteen through 17, we talked about this a little bit. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden. But, so, so he says work and keep. Work and keep. So what is God doing when he says work and keep? God is assigning responsibility and stewardship. So when he says work, he's saying, here, you have some responsibility over this place, and not only that, but you are to keep it. The idea, the, the, the word there for keep, the idea is, is that you are to take care of this thing in the stead of the person who is leaving it in your care. So God is essentially saying, here, here's my stuff. I want you to take care of it for me. Uh, so God gives humanity stuff. And then says, take care of it for me. And this is rightly in his authority to do, right? Because he created everything. He determines how it all gets built and how it all operates. And so he takes it and he gives it. So in his sovereignty, he assigns stuff to human beings. And he says, now you human beings, you are stewards of my stuff, right? The things that I've created. You need to exercise your authority well. So we kind of carry out the task of ownership. So, so everything, everything you own is yours ultimately because God has given it to you, 
Right? Like that's the idea. Everything that you have is yours because God has given it to you. In the, in the garden, God kind of established this pattern of saying work and keep, and this would be the pattern that he does with the rest of humanity. Here are the things that I have created. Work and keep. Exercise your responsibility and your stewardship. So you're saying, wait, so, so even what I've earned isn't actually mine? Well, I mean, if we follow the concept out, yes, actually, that's true. Like, certainly, you deserve what you earn, but nothing that you earn could have come to you without God already designing beforehand that it should be there for you. Like, ask any person who has lost their job for a long period of time and tried to earn money but could not. And now they have a job. Like, how grateful are they for that job? How much do they recognize that God has enabled them this ability to earn money? How grateful are they for the fact that they are being provided for? So yes, everything you own is yours ultimately because God has given it to you. So ownership is sacred, and in it, we kind of carry out this holy task of wisely caring for the things that God has placed in our care. So ownership is so sacred because in ownership, we actually kind of reflect a significant piece of what it means to be human. Like God, God says humanity rule and have dominion, have authority, and, the, and then you're going to work and keep. You're going to take care of my things. And so, so in our stewardship, in our ownership, we carry out what it means to be human So then when we go back to the command and and we take all of this into account, we take into account the reality that God has given us everything that we have, then really the overarching idea and our main point this morning is this. Don't take what God hasn't given you. Don't take what God hasn't given you. When he says don't steal, he's saying, hey, I have given you ownership over certain things. So those are the things that belong to you. Don't take anything that I've not given you. Why? Well, because I've not placed it in your care. I am king. I am creator. I am sovereign. I decide who gets what. And he is, maybe he's decided someone else to steward the thing that you really want. And and you're like, but they're not going to do a good job with it. Like, I don't know if they're going to do a good job with it, but you know what? It doesn't matter because he hasn't given it to you. He's given it to them. Don't take what God hasn't given you. You only need to be concerned with the things that he has given you. So when we steal then, what are we really doing? And this is where we get to the heart of the matter. When we steal, we're saying that I would be better off with more than what God has given me. Like, so, so Christian, you believer in Jesus, truster of God, are you putting your trust of God on display in how you own what you own? Or can others see you regularly trying to get things that God has not given you? So, uh, let's, let's do a scenario here. Imagine me uh, I worked landscaping at one point. So imagine me working landscaping, uh, me and one other guy, and I have this tendency inside of me where I kind of want to cave to peer pressure. 
And so, so me and this other guy, we, uh, we are coming to the end of our day, and, and at the end of the day, he wants to kind of write our ending time at 6 p.m., but we actually pulled into the garage at 5.15, right? And so, so we have to, we can't write different times between the two of us. We have to write the same time, because if we write different times, the boss would know that something is up. So the difference, like if we're talking one day, the difference between 5.15 and 6 o'clock from a financial standpoint is inconsequential. For him, it might actually make a little bit of a difference for us. So, so the question that I have to answer, if I am in the middle of this scenario, is am I going to cave to this sense of peer pressure because I know he's, hey, like, let's just write 6. Like, we're, we're close enough to 6 o'clock. It's no big deal. Or am I going to graciously explain that God has not given me the money for that 45 minutes of time, right? Like, God has not given me that time. I cannot steal it, right? And so, will it make me popular with my friend who I work with day in and day out to say this? Well, no. Will it make him mad at me to say this? Yes. Uh, Will it put my trust in God and everything he's given me on display in that moment. Yes. Could it potentially show in the future, like when he is actually in a place where he wants to reflect on the things of God, could it be meaningful enough to him that he would go, that person who knew Jesus at that point in my life, they had integrity. They actually had value for honoring God and the things that God had given them. But if we steal, like if we go ahead and say, yeah, let's write 515, we're saying that we trust God, yeah, for everything except our stuff, right? We need to take from others in order to manage that part of our life. And that's really what's happening with theft. So John 12, 6 tells us a story about theft is the very thing that set inside the heart of Judas the betrayer. Judas is, uh, in, in, they're, all the disciples are together in, in the middle of the scenario where um, Mary comes and she has this very expensive perfume and she pours it out at the feet of Jesus, right? She gives everything she has and this expensive perfume, Judas speaks up and says, man, what is she doing? Like, we could sell that and give it to the poor. And, and John, who happened to know Judas very well, said this. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Right, like, I mean, Judas is traveling along with the disciples. The disciples realize that God has their backs, that they are taken care of everywhere that they go. Like, they never have lack for the things that they need. But Judas is taking something off the top. He's trying to advance himself beyond his current station. What does this eventually lead to? Well, it eventually leads to him selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So, so at its core, this is what theft is about. At its core, theft is about advancing me beyond what God has given me. All right, so go back to the garden. 
Adam and Eve there in, in the garden, and the serpent says, you are not yet like God. Right? God has not given that to you. But if you take this, you will be like God. You will know good and evil. In that moment, the serpent says, hey, God hasn't given you a better position, but you can advance yourself right now to that better position if you take what doesn't belong to you. So, least we think that this is something that mostly other people need to hear, the New Testament, as it does with every commandment, reminds us that this command is not just about outward action, but it has something to do with our hearts. James 4, 1 through 4 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you know what? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. He's saying, you know what? You fight with each other because your hearts are constantly in a place where you are seeking to advance beyond what God has already given you. So are you content with what God has given you or do you seek to move beyond it? And the blessing of the New Testament is not only does it reveal to us that our hearts are broken, but it also gives us antidotes for these broken hearts. And the antidote for thieving hearts is found in Ephesians 4.28. In Ephesians 4, up to this point, this is what the Apostle Paul has done. He has talked about the amazing, surpassing, far-reaching things that Jesus has accomplished for people who trust in him. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Your identity is is secure in him. This is not about what you do. This is about what he has accomplished for you. Jesus has been so good to you. So Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He's saying, you know what, if you really value what Jesus has done and accomplished for you, if it means anything to you, then this is what you're going to do. You're going to start working hard. You are going to own honestly You are going to learn to be content with the things that he has given you. And then from that point, you are going to give freely. Okay, so what? So what this morning? All of these things being said, what would the Lord have us do? Number one, thieves, repent and pay back what you have stolen. So so the law, thankfully, did not demand death for people who stole things, unless what you stole was other people. Uh, But in the Old Testament, real repentance, like if you were going to turn your ways around, it actually required something called restitution. Because what was stolen was already required to be returned. So so, uh, Old Covenant restitution laws for robbery, repayment, uh, was the, the thing that you stole plus one-fifth of the value. If you stole an ox that can't be returned, 
you had to pay back five times the value. If you stole a sheep that couldn't be returned, you had to pay four times the value. And for stealing an animal that is returned, any animal that is returned, you had to pay two times the value. Why would you have to pay back more? Well, the idea is when you stole that thing, you stole away the investment that that thing could become, right? So you didn't just steal the actual value of the thing, you stole all the potential future value of the thing as well, so you had to make restitution. So there was this idea, and it was already... uh, input it into the old covenant that you would give back beyond what you stole if you repented. So, that, so that's just something interesting for us to keep track of. We look at the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. What does he do? But he says, anybody I've wronged, I'm going to give back four times what I stole, right? Because he has this encounter with Jesus. So let's talk about stealing then. Let's talk about common ways of stealing today. We looked at how they could steal in the Old Testament. How can we steal today? How many ways can you steal? Well, number one, you can steal stuff. So this is like not giving back what you borrowed. And um, I'm sorry, and I probably need to hear this more than anyone else. Laziness is not an excuse for not giving back the thing that you borrowed, right? This is like taking money that doesn't belong to you, right? That's like, and that's the basic idea that we get most frequently with this. But another one that is actually really common today is stealing content. So content in our society today, this is uh, things like video, music, words, books, all of this stuff. Like Content is a significant piece of our culture today. It didn't used to be, but today it is. And when we steal content, we disrupt the economy so that people who get their livelihoods off of making content can no longer make that money, right? So how do we do this? Well, we do it through plagiarism. So taking ideas that somebody else came up with and claiming them as our own. Uh, we do it with uh, background music. Like when, uh, when you put music on your videos that you might make or put music on stuff that you don't own, if you don't own that music, you're actually stealing that music from somebody else if they have not given you the rights to use it in the context that you're using it in. We do it with piracy, right? That's like the most explicit. So piracy of music, piracy of movies. Uh, We do it with the stealing of library books. There's like, do you know how much money every year is like lost because of stolen library books? It's something like $75 million in the United States or something like that. Um, So stealing content. Number three, stealing money through time. So this is using uh, work time for purposes that have not been sanctioned by your supervisor. This is having somebody, hey, like calling ahead of time and saying, hey, I'm running late, but can you go ahead and punch me in ahead of time, right? It's that kind of concept. Uh, Number four, stealing value through vandalism. So when you intentionally cause damage to any property that does not belong to you, you know what? That is someone else's property, and you are removing the value of that property from them. Like, they've worked. They've earned for that property. So when you damage their property, even if it's accidental, like, you need to fess up. You need to, like, work out your insurance. You need to do whatever you can to pay back the damage because that was value that somebody else had. Uh, number five, this is one that we might not think about with stealing, but it's, it's important. Expecting survival while refusing to work. 
right? So there are qualifiers for what I'm not saying. I recognize people have, uh, whether it's disability or uh, like other reasons that would prevent them from working. I'm talking about the intentional decision to not work. And this is not like, I didn't say to not have a job. I said to not work because people work in the home and people work outside of the home. The intentional decision to do no work. This drains resources from those closest to you. It takes advantage of the generosity of other people. It requires the things that others own in order to perpetuate your laziness. Like this thing, when people have the ability to work and decide not to work. It's like stealing from your family, stealing from your neighbors, right? Stealing from society, right? Especially if you say, I'm not going to work so that society can provide for me, right? So, so that's number five. Number six, stealing from God by not giving. Everybody's like really nervous now. So, uh, so God, guess what? God doesn't need your money. The church actually doesn't need your money either, and everybody might have gotten nervous about that too. I don't know. But, but God desires, and we collectively desire the sanctification of one another. God desires our sanctification, our participation in his mission. And that's not just like participation with the things that we do. That's participation with everything that we are, including our finances, right? Like one of the ways that God can do the most significant sanctification is if you learn to let go of the money that you have to use it for his purposes, and it belongs to him anyway. Like this, this is actually, so in the, in the New Testament, like this is a full expectation of what the people of God would do. Like the people of God share their resources to care for the needy, to advance the mission. Like if you are a part of the church, then you are a part of this sharing of resources. Now I'm not talking about tithing, right? Like I'm not talking about you have to give this certain percent. I'm saying when you become a part of the people of God, part of what it means to be a part of the people of God is to share your resources with the community of God. It's a regular pattern. So if, G, if you're a Jesus follower and God has given you resources to, to steward, then one of the ways that he intends you to steward those resources is to use it within the community of God. He wants you to give those resources away. And not actually not just to the church. Like, he also wants you to be generous people as you go out. As you see a, a waitress who might be in need or might have been struggling because of COVID-19, he gives you the freedom to maybe tip her a little bit more than he, you might tip her if you have that margin in your life. But the, the basic idea of the New Testament is that you would give. And every time we hold that money back, we say we need it for ourselves. Even if we took small steps of learning to give away, we'd be stepping into faithfulness and using our resources like God intends. So with all of these ways that we can steal, there is an antidote. The antidote is work hard, own honestly, be content with what we have, and give willingly. Okay, uh, number two. So what, number two? It is good for nations to create infrastructure for those who cannot survive on their own. 
So, so recognition, getting ahead, is not the only motivation for stealing. Like, I, we talked about that earlier, like, we want to get ahead of where God has placed us. That's not actually the only motivation for stealing. Sometimes people steal because they can't survive with what they have. So, so their stealing is purely motivated by survival. And this is, um, so, so in places where the poor are not cared for, the way that they learn to care for themselves is to steal. And this is actually one of the most frequent critiques that Israel gets, and even other nations in Scripture get. So we should not take lightly compassion for the poor and starving person. And you're like getting really nervous that I'm getting ready to say, so they are justified and they're stealing. And that is absolutely not true. Proverbs 6, 30-31 says this, People do not despise a thief if he steals. So this is actually speaking of the compassion that we have to the person who is stealing to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. Right? Like, we, we don't despise him. We understand that he would do that situation. But, verse 31, if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. You know what? So there is, a, there is like still punishment in this situation, but there is a heart that emphasizes compassion towards this person, even if it doesn't endorse their actions. So as we think about stealing, we should think about the poor and the starving person and ask, like, what would it take for them to not have to steal for their survival? I'm talking about survival, right? I'm not talking about, like, (laughs) giving tons of resources. I'm asking, what would it take for them to stop stealing for their survival? God actually does this with Israel, right? So so Israel comes along, and, and they're in the middle of this land, and God says, hey, you farmers, when you are building your fields, leave the corners of your fields so that when the poor and starving person comes through your fields, they'll actually have a way to take care of themselves so that they don't have to steal for their survival. Right? So, so church, this is like why we have a benevolent fund here. Right? To care for the poor, to reflect to them God's heart for them. Right? So, I've said all of that, and now I need you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not advocating communism, right? I'm not advocating, like, personal, uh, like, there's value in personal ownership and not state ownership, right? Like, that's, I'm not talking about that. I'm not, like, anything that would mitigate a strong work ethic in a place, anything that would mitigate personal ownership, anything that would mitigate people taking personal responsibility, those things should be rejected and reevaluated. I am saying God loves it when nations actually take care of the people who don't have the basic necessities to survive. So number three, Jesus follower, be content and wise. God will take care of you. So we are stewards, and not only that, but we are stewards who have actually been renewed in our stewardship by the Holy Spirit, which means that, that like, because of this renewal, we have all the wisdom we need, we have all the ability that we need to actually handle our stuff like God would handle our stuff. We have access to all of the wisdom that we would need to be able to be good stewards. So, 
we need to do two things. Number one, we need to rest in God's provision for us. But then number two, we need to handle his resources wisely, right? So like when you, if it costs you more money to eat fast food every day than it does to go to the grocery store so that you can make your food, and you're eating fast food every day, and you are now like really concerned about not having enough money, like you you don't lack money because God has not given you money. You lack money because there's, like, there's a way that you can be wiser with the ways that you spend your money, right? So, so there is value in wisdom, right? So God's giving you resources and wisdom. So if we be content and wise, handle his resources wisely, if we do this, then we have all sorts of promises that we will be taken care of. Like, number one, we can be taken care of through God's people. Like, if we're being wise and content and we still don't have enough, then as a part of God's people, we actually see, like in Acts chapter 6, God taking care of those people. We, uh, we can be taken care of through hard work. We can be taken care of through investing our resources in other places. We can be taken care of through inheritance. We might be taken care of even through God's providence. Jesus says, look at the sparrows. Like, they have everything that they need. Does your Father in heaven not love you as much as they, them? Right, so, so we need to learn to be content and wise with what we have and know that God will take care of us. And number four, this is the last thing that I have to say this morning. It's this, Jesus changes hearts that steal to get into hearts that give to bless. Because what did he do? He came and he looked at people who were thieves, whether explicitly through their actions or in their hearts, and he decided that he wanted us to be a part of his kingdom so much that he would give his very life, that he would be sacrificed and bear on the weight of his body and his soul and his emotions the wrath of God towards our thievery so that we might have something called life. Right? So he gives us this gift of life. And when we understand how far it is that we have fallen short and how good he has been to us, what he's actually done for us. When the Holy Spirit tells those truths to our hearts again and again, what it does is actually change our hearts from those who think we need to get, that we need to move beyond our current station to those who say, what resources have, has he given me already? How can I create margin within those resources that I might be able to bless others? Right. So these are the good things that Jesus does for us. This is God's heart for what he would have us do with his resources. Church, would you pray with me, please, this morning? Father, this morning I'm particularly aware that you are the owner of everything. And that in your ownership, you have given us this sacred task of ourselves being owners. So Lord, I ask that you would help us to see where our hearts would be thieving. Where our actions might even be thieving. 
Lord, and that you would draw our attention to the goodness of what it is that you have accomplished for us in the gospel, the way that you gave yourself for us, the extent to which you loved us, even though time and time again we tend to show ourselves to be unlovable. But Lord, that's not what you say about us. So, so I pray that it would be the gospel that would change our hearts and our actions that we would learn to view our resources not just as what belongs to us, but as what is already yours. And we would seek to be those who would, instead of moving beyond our current station by trying to get somebody else's stuff, that we would take our stuff and learn to ask you the question, what do you want with it? Lord, we love you, and we pray that you would help us grow in this love for you in all of our actions. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.